praise God. Praise God. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We're looking at verses this morning, 28 through 44. Luke chapter 19, we're digging into verses 28 through 44. I'm reading this morning from the English Standard Version, and these are God's words. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, and as they were untying the coat, its owner said to them, why are you untying the coat? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the coat, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you, on every, hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers, hearers, and doers of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen. This is a Palm Sunday passage. Amen. This morning, uh, we celebrate, as I mentioned, Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, uh, the very first day in which has been become known in the global church as Holy Week or for some Passion Week. Um, it's the final week uh, recorded in Scripture leading up to the death of, of Jesus. And, and so, um, in, this, in this final week leading up to the, to the death of Jesus, it begins here in this, this scene in Luke chapter 19. Um, and and it, what's interesting about this week is that, you know, moving from here to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection in many ways moves like a blur. I mean, if, we, if, you, if you just sit there and you think about it, it has no choice but to move like a blur because of it starting like this. It starts with Jesus entering into a city and people rejoicing and shouting and screaming and shouting, Hosanna, save us, save us. And palm uh, leaves are, and palm branches rather are waving at his arrival. And it ends with Jesus in a tomb in one week. And that's quite a swing. 
But as Jesus moves closer and closer to his appointed hour, it is intended to become clearer and clearer to those of us who are watching him that he is more than just a man. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. As they say, the hypostatic union. This is more than just the arrival of a man into his chosen city of destiny in the final week of his life. This is the arrival of God. This is the arrival of the king of the universe. And the gospel writers are striving to make that very clear to us, including this gospel writer, Luke. Now, the scene that we read about here in Luke is a very familiar scene to us. We've seen it play out in different ways and in different stories, the scene of an awaited king returning home. There's usually a tremendous amount of celebration and time of rejoicing and happiness because when the king returns to his rightful place, all appears right in the world. You see it in the Lord of the Rings with Aragon's coronation as king. You see it in coming to America when Prince Akeem returns with his bride Lisa. There's a lot of celebration and a lot of jubilation because when the one who we see as king returns home, joy enters the heart and, the, and hope enters the soul because his seat at the throne signals to us that everything is going to be okay. We say the same thing for a moment in Luke chapter 19, actually. Jesus shows up on the scene, and there's a sense in which everybody's thinking that everything is truly going to be okay. And so I want to focus on a couple of things this morning. Number one, the arrival of the king. Number two, the reaction to that king's arrival, and then number three, his response to their reaction. Now, the the first thing we're going to spend all of our time on, and then the last two things we're going to run quickly through, all right? So, the arrival of the king. You know, in the movie um, Ali, um, the biopic about the life and career of the boxing uh, heavyweight champion Muhammad Ali, played by the infamous now Will Smith, Amen. All right. (laughs) Just had to get that out. There is a moment where Ali walks into the training gym in in Zaire, Africa, where he is preparing for his 1974 rumble in the jungle bout with big George Foreman. And the first thing he does, now this doesn't happen, actually. There's there's no actual... um, um, factoids out there that actually confirm that this happens. But in the movie, the first thing that happens when Ali shows up in the gym, he runs in the gym. Obviously, he's doing his Ali thing full of brash and bravado and, you know, yelling and shouting. And then he sees um, a set of African or he sees a group of African drum players. He goes and he takes one of the drums from the African drum player and he does this. The champ is here. The champ is here. The champ is here. That's what he does. Crawford, what are you doing? In my mind, I see drum beats all throughout this text that is giving us indicators that the king is here, the king is here, the king is here. And there's these, there's these, there's, there's these pop, 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 pop. There's, there's these you know, rhythmic beats throughout the text that's pointing us to the reality that the king has arrived. And I want to talk a little bit about some of those drum beats in this text. Luke chapter 19 gives us one of those first drum beats, verse 28 rather. It says, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up 
to Jerusalem. When he had said these things, the first drumbeat we see is in the very first words of the passage. When he had said these things, what things should we, uh, that's the question we all should be asking. And those things that we would find out he say, had said are found in verses 11 through 27. In verses 11 through 27, Jesus tells us a parable. It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so he tells a parable, and you guys, most of you guys know this parable is the parable basically of talents, or minas, here in this text. He has a group, one person that has 10, one person that has five, the other person has um, um, none. And then each one of these people, he says, hey, go and do business. Go and make something of it. I'm coming back, and when I come back, I'm going to check. Now, there's that group. There's the group that he gives, uh, he gives talents to, right? But then there's amongst them, um, there's, there's one group of people who actually just despise him. And so you got a guy that has 10, you got a guy that has five, you got a guy that has one, and then you got a group that just despise him. And the king goes, and as he goes, he comes to establish the kingdom, but then he leaves. He says he's coming back. And then he comes back. And he says, hey, guy with the 10, what did you do? You guys remember the story. Hey, I went out, I got 10 more. Great. Well done, good and faithful servant. Guy with the five, what did you do? Hey, man, you, you know what I did, Lord. I went out and got more. Well done, now good and faithful servant. Guy with the one, what did you do? Oh, man, I knew you were very strict. Knew you were... Um, very firm. And so I went and I, I took mine and I hit it. And then he said, if you knew that, then why didn't you go do something with what I gave you? And then he takes it from him. Give it to the one who has 10. They said, well, Lord, he already, he already had 10. He made 10 more. And he says, no, 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 no. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even that, what, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 27, but as for these enemies of mine who, di who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here, slaughter them before me. So he has enemies here. He has people here that are making much of his name taking what he's given them to do much with it. And then he asked people here that, ah, I don't know if I should do anything with what he's given me. There's some doubt there, right? Maybe he's not coming back. I'm not sure. Why is that important? Because this is why it's important. Because the parable is about this moment. The parable is about this moment. Let me give you the key here. The key... We hear it at the very beginning. He says that, verse, verse 11, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He told this story because those he told it to thought that the kingdom of God would appear immediately 
in all of its splendor. In other words, Jesus told the story because there were people observing his arrival into Jerusalem and saying to themselves and quite possibly even saying to one another, the king is here and now that he's here, Everything that is wrong with our country and our world is about to be made right. Everything that is politically wrong, everything that is socially wrong, everything that is financially wrong is about to be made right because the king is about to fix it now. And so Jesus prepares for his arrival by telling the story of a nobleman who comes to receive his kingdom, but then leaves again with the promise to come back and fully restore it. In other words, he's telling the story about himself. His arrival in Jerusalem is meant to be seen as the beginning of him receiving the kingdom and not the end when everything is made right. And he's trying to prepare them for that. But the parable is not only about Jesus and his arrival as the nobleman receiving the kingdom, it is also about the way that the servants of this nobleman respond to him. And it's about the way the enemies respond to him. Some of those servants I mentioned, they fully embrace him. They get to work and, while, and, and they get to work while they're awaiting his return and they begin producing more, more fruit. Others serve him, but when they have to wait for his return, they fall off and they begin to live wasteful lives, kind of just huddled up trying to hold on to this one, that, uh, this one uh, gift that, that he gave them. And yet others oppose him on every side from the very beginning to the very end. So what is Jesus doing? He's telling a parable that serves as a foretelling of what is about to happen as he's going into the city. The king is coming to town to establish his kingdom, but it is not going to look like a kingdom that you would think a kingdom should look like and that you would expect a kingdom should look like. So it's going to throw a lot of people off. Some people are going to embrace him regardless because they see him for who he truly is. Others will lose focus because the kingdom isn't going to be what they expected and the king isn't going to be what they expected. And yet others will oppose him outright. So the first drumbeat we hear at the king's arrival is a parable about the king's arrival. Here's the next drumbeat. Verse 29. When we draw near to Bethphage in Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. This is a powerful drumbeat because in 2 Samuel, the Old Testament, chapter 15, scripture tells us about a moment when David, the king of Israel, was losing his grip on his kingdom. His very own flesh and blood, his son, Absalom, had won the heart of the people, Scripture says, and had basically ran David out of town for a spell. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, it says, But David went uh, went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. David going up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his hair head covered, And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. So David, betrayed by his own flesh and blood, going up the Mount of Olives, shame, betrayed, barefoot, weeping, his head covered. Now, we know that Jesus, too, also experienced something very similar in the way of betrayal and in the way of betrayal at the Mount of Olives. For it was there that Jesus was betrayed by who? By Judas. 
But unlike David with his only picture at the Mount of Olives being a picture of him ascending it while getting pushed out of his kingdom through betrayal by his own blood, Jesus is seen here in this text that we're reading coming down the Mount of Olives, being crowned through his upcoming betrayal. David going up, betrayed, and being seen as being seen in shame. Jesus coming down, betrayed or to be betrayed, and yet through that betrayal coming down into his coronation as king. David going up, the son of David coming down, coronated. Do you see that? Again, another drum beat. It's pointing to this camp coming and arriving king. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus shows us that those who follow him will see victory even when it appears that our enemies have secured our demise. We find another drumbeat in the animal that Jesus rides into town on. The young colt or the donkey. Verse 29, it says, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no, tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. This colt's significance, by the way, begins over 500 years ago from this moment. Because this cult significance is in the writings of the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 through 13, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a cult. This is the king. Now, this king, verse 10, it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and, and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit and return to your stronghold. O prisoners of hope, today I declare that I will restore to you double all of that is happening through the work of this king. The great kingdoms will be smashed. And through the work of this king, the prisoners will be freed and restored. But how will this king do it? <laughs> Not on the seats of mighty chariots pulled by powerful steeds and war horses. No. Instead, this king is going to do it humbly and mounted on a donkey. You see, this passage reminds us that the Lord's kingdom is not one of power necessarily or worldly power as we see it. It is not necessarily one of worldly might as we see it, but it is one of humility, one of grace, one of meekness, one of lowliness and finding power and might through those means. You know, one of the most tragic deceptions that Satan has tricked us into believing as the way of Jesus is to present us a way of sheer might, sheer power, brute force, and tell us that's what it means to follow Jesus. 
And it is because of this deception that we now look at those with sheer might, sheer power, sheer strength, sheer force, and we say those are the people that we need to follow. Those are the people that we need to align with. Those are the people that we need to esteem and elevate. We look at those that have gotten their wealth through sheer power, sheer might, and sheer force. We look at the boastful who love to boast about their sheer power, sheer might, and sheer force. We look at the brutal, we look at the powerful, and we tell ourselves that the only hope we have is if they lead us. The only victory that we'll ever have in life is acting like they act, or pursuing what they pursue, or talking like they talk, but that couldn't be farther from the way of Jesus, saints. Jesus responds to this doctrine of the world with his own truth. We call it the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the kingdom of God. This is how the king reigns. This is how he executes his reign on earth. This is how he demonstrates and wields his power and his might. And this is how our victory in Jesus is secured. Humble, mounted on a donkey. Brothers and sisters, when you think about your own path in life, how you operate on your job, how you operate in your homes, how you operate towards your neighbors, towards your children, towards your spouse, towards your friends, or even towards your church members. Are you committed to this way of Jesus? Humility instead of pride, meekness instead of hardness, gentleness instead of harshness, forgiveness instead of bitterness and resentment, blessing instead of cursing and reviling. Or are you committed to the world's way of establishing a kingdom because you believe that that's the only hope you have? When you see Jesus coming down the street on the donkey, do you say, that's not how a king's supposed to look? Or do you say, no, that's my king and his kingdom is eternal? Did you notice how Jesus gets the donkey as we read, by the way? In his getting of the donkey, we hear more of the drum beats that the king is here. Verse 31, it says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. The picture of them throwing their cloaks on the colt is intended to kind of serve as a, it's intended to serve as a soft saddle, but it's, but it's also a picture of throning Jesus. And then what do they do? They take him and they 
thrown him on a donkey. But also in this moment, we see subtle ways in which divine authority is on display. The first demonstration of divine authority is in the king's ownership of the property. You see, the Romans had a governing principle that they called angaria. And in some, of, in, some of way, in, some, in some ways, it played out like eminent domain in a way. Basically what it was is that in the name of an authority, an asset could be seized by the authorities and claimed as their own. You got a house, we need that house. You got, a, you got stock, um, cattle, we need that stock. We need, we, need, we need that cattle. You got materials, we need those materials. You have a donkey, we have need of that donkey. So you see kind of this, this, this uh, seizure, so to speak, taking place by this authority. Jesus tells them to go and get this young colt. And, if, and, and by the way, the colt has never been, um, never been uh, rolled on, and that too is a picture of authority. They would normally reserve these types of animals for very important people. The ones that had never been rolled on, those would be important people that would take the first dib, if you will. But nevertheless, Jesus says, hey, go and get this young colt, and if someone asks you about it, tell them the Lord has need of it. Now, what's interesting is some scholars highlight the thought that the immediate context of the word the Lord here is the Lord of the donkey. The Lord of the donkey has need of it. Now, here's what's even more interesting is that here we hear Jesus saying, tell them that the Lord of the donkey has need of the donkey. And then the disciples go. And then some people come and ask him, hey, what you doing untying the donkey? And who are the people? The owners. And so Jesus says, hey, when the owners come, tell them that the Lord of the donkey has need of the donkey. In other words, yes, you own this donkey, but the one that is coming into town carries an authority that extends beyond your authority. And he has need of what you own because before it is yours, it is his. How free are you with offering the Lord what already belongs to him when he calls for it in your life? The time that you believe belongs to you. When the Lord says, I want that time for you to serve my kingdom and my purposes and my agenda, how do you respond? The owner said, it's his donkey, take it. Matter of fact, when we, when Luke doesn't even record their response. They just come back with the donkey. Luke's like, isn't it obvious? The Lord has need. The treasure that you believe belongs to you. When the king says, I want that treasure for the sake of another in need or for the advancement of my church or my kingdom in the world, how do you respond? The talent that you believe belongs to you. When Jesus says, I want that talent for the sake of displaying my glory to the world and pointing people to the hope of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus, how do you respond? When Jesus calls your children away from you, whether it be to the mission field or whether it be to some other place to fulfill his purposes and his mission for their lives. Do you say, those are my children, Jesus? Or do you say, 
go forth. If that's what the Lord has called you to, then we'll be praying for you. You see, in the king's claim of this donkey, we see his claim on us. But the second demonstration of divine authority is in the king's authority of the future. You see, Jesus tells his disciples, go and untie the donkey. And if someone asks you, why are you untying it? Respond, the Lord has need of it and bring it on back because they're going to let you take it, right? And so Jesus knows this because he knows the beginning from the end. He knows what's in front of him. He knows that they're going to go and somebody's going to say, hey, why are you untying that donkey? And then they can respond, the Lord has need of it. And he knows that they're going to say, okay, take the donkey back to the Lord. He knows this. He knows this, which means he also knows everything else that's in front of him. Even more phenomenal, not only does he know this, but he controls what's in front of him. He knows the timing in which this is to take place. The king knows what's ahead. He is not surprised, in other words, by Judas's betrayal. He will not be surprised by the disciples' cowardice in the end. He will not be cut off guard by the Jewish leaders' treachery and the Romans' leaders' willingness to allow the trumped-up charges placed on him to, uh, to, to, to rest or just in order to appease the community that is screaming, crucify him. He is aware of all of it, and yet he gets on the donkey and yet he doesn't turn and run in the other direction, and yet he rides the donkey right into the madness, right into the city where it will all go down because this is how the kingdom will be ushered in. Let me ask you a question, saints. Do you believe that? Because, see, if he knows exactly what he's walking into in Jerusalem, then don't you think he knows exactly what you're walking into in 2022? Is he caught off guard by your situation? Is he he surprised by your circumstances? No, he knows exactly what you're walking into. And so if you say, yes, I believe that the Lord knew exactly what he was walking into when he walked gladly or he rode gladly into Jerusalem on the the humble uh, ride of a donkey, then you should say, yes, I know exactly what the Lord has in front of me or he knows rather exactly what he has in front of me as I walk into the chaos of my own life. As I walk into the struggles of my own life, as I walk into the trials of my own life, I know that my king knows exactly what is there. And he is preparing the way for me. Whatever that way looks like, whether that way is suffering with us leaning and resting in him, whether that way is even death with us living in him after death, whatever that way looks like, I know my king is with me. And he is not surprised by what's ahead. And so I can go confidently because he goes before me. Now notice the reaction, verse 36. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So how do they respond when Jesus shows up? When the king shows up, how do they respond? Like the parable, there are some who respond with worship and diligence. 
They respond by acknowledging him for who he is. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, he is on a donkey, but he is king. No, there is no court that's surrounding him as he enters, but he is king. The king has arrived. The king is here. They respond by crying out. Other gospels, other gospel accounts rather declare that the people cry out, Hosanna, 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 as the king enters into the city. In other words, save us, save us, save us. But there are others who are present that respond differently. Verse 39, it says, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. How dare they give you this much, this much pomp? How dare they receive you with such fanfare? How dare they celebrate you so much? They are capping all over the place over here, right? Rebuke your disciples. And Jesus gives them a, an incredibly interesting response as they call for the rebukes. He answers, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. Here's what we need to know about Jesus' words here. Worship is going to happen whether we choose to worship or not. Worship is going to happen whether we choose to worship or not because the worthiness of God is present whether we see it or not. You don't have to see God's worthiness for him to be worthy. In fact, many don't see his worthiness and many that are worshiping him today will cease to worship him by the end of this pivotal week, by the end of this passion week, by the end of this holy week because they can't see the worthiness. When they realize that Rome isn't going to be overthrown, then they get confused and doubtful and they stop worshiping. When they realize that he isn't going to give Israel immediate rule and command, then they get confused and doubtful and they stop worshiping. When they realize that life is not going to totally change and all the poor will not be immediately wealthy and all the ill will not be immediately healthy and all the powerless will not be immediately powerful, they lose confidence in this king. And so by their inability to see the king, they miss the king. Because their inability to see the king doesn't, doesn't in, uh, invalidate the king's royalty. Their inability to see the king doesn't nullify what he is doing to establish his kingdom. So you can remain silent. Because this king doesn't come in the way that you, you feel like this king should come. But this king will continue to be worshipped despite your silence. You know, there are three people in, in this moment, I mentioned them earlier, but there are three people in this moment that are responding to the arrival of this king. There's the outright opposers of this king. They want no parts of this. They're chastising Jesus. Hey, stop your people from doing all of this. In the words of C.S. Lewis, either he, they see him as either a liar, unworthy of trust and allegiance, or they see him as a lunatic that should receive pity and sympathy instead of praise and adoration. Or possibly, maybe they do see him as Lord, but if he is Lord, 
the opposers reject him because if he is Lord, he is standing in the way of me and what I want in my way. But either way, they're outright opposing him. And yet there are others here who have come to embrace him and celebrate him as king, but only on their own terms. So when they cry, Hosanna, save us, and he responds, I will, they will embrace him only if he will save them from the worldly and natural harm that they're facing, meaning that I will embrace you, Jesus, if you save me from my political threats and my political chaos, or I will embrace you, Jesus, if you save me from my financial threats and my financial chaos, or I will, I will embrace you, Jesus, if you save me from my medical threats or my medical chaos, or I will, I will embrace you, Jesus, if you save me from my social and my cultural threats and chaos. You see, but when he is no longer useful to save us from these things, we move away from him looking for someone else to save us. But then there's the last group. And this group has moved past all of these other responses. And in this group is a, a response of an embrace, but an embrace on his terms and not their terms. A response that communicates a need for someone to save us, but not save us how we want to be saved, but save us how we really need to be saved. To save us from our sin, to rescue us from our spiritual separation from the God of the universe and to bring us and draw us near, to rescue us from the wrath of God that is coming to all those that reject this sacrifice. To save us not just from physical and emotional and socioeconomic despair and brokenness, but to save us more importantly from spiritual brokenness and eternal brokenness that comes through our own sin. And so those are the people that when the king arrives, those are the people that embrace him, the king embraces them, and they receive his kingdom now and forever. You know, in closing, as we look at the last couple of verses here, a very startling thing happens, right? Jesus comes in on this grand pronouncement. He's riding on this donkey. He's being celebrated. People are cheering. People are trying to quiet down those that are cheering. And he says, hey, if, you, if they don't cheer, the rocks are going to cry out. And then this thing happens right after in verse 41. It says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept. Imagine that turn, right? You're moving, you're entering into the city with all of this pomp and all of this celebration, and he moves from celebration to weeping. In verse 42, he says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And Jesus says, you didn't know what truly made for peace. You came looking for a king that was going to give you political favor. You came looking for a king that was going to give you economic stability. You came looking for a king that was going to give you socioeconomic status. 
And yet a king came to provide you with what you really needed. A king came that came to bring peace. That's what they were screaming as he was there. What kind of peace? Shalom. Wholeness, complete and total wholeness. The king came to bring complete and total wholeness. And he said, you did not recognize the things that was going to bring you shalom. You were looking for someone to do all these other things. I came to do the thing that you really needed. You rejected that. And because you rejected that, you're going to meet your demise. There are some of us. I pray none in this room. I pray none that are watching online this morning. There are some of us that are chasing so many things, screaming, save us. Not recognizing that the Savior is here to give you what you truly need. Peace with God. Shalom. Wholeness. Wellness. Fully restored. Set aside for eternity awaiting your glorified state. And instead, we're chasing all of these other things that we believe will bring salvation. And as a result, we're missing the hour of visitation. Saints of God, when the king arrives and he has arrived, will you embrace him as king? Or will you look for another? I pray that you embrace him as king. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you. And we give you all the